Yeah, thank you so much. And it's uh thank you so much for for having me here. And and yeah, so I guess the the sort of structure here is is first I want to talk about um why why raise capital, why why syndicate apartments or why syndicate real estate in general it doesn't just have to be apartments, but uh, whatever asset class you're into. Um so first I want to talk about you know the benefits of that. Then we're going to go into the laws uh, around raising capital. Um, you know, how to stay compliant. Then we're going to go through a little bit of deal structuring. And then next week, uh, what I'd like to do is, is, you know, I've developed sort of a, a process in my legal, you know, in my, in my practice to really help efficiently, um, you know, provide uh, the legal services, the legal documents for, uh, for my clients. Um, so we're going to go through that, that system uh, next week. And, and hopefully you guys get a lot of value out of that. But um, so I know we're, we're limited on time and we got a lot to cover. So I'm, I'm just going to share my screen real quick. And what I want to go through now is um, I, I'm sure a lot of you on here um, have have, you know, a lot of experience or are very inexperienced in, in real estate. And, you know, the, the first question uh, I remember, I forget how many years ago now it was, but before I went to law school, I remember uh, thinking like, you know, I, I was working at this job that I didn't I didn't like it was kind of a dead end job. Um, and I was just thinking, man, I, I, I don't know how to ever like get out of this this sort of rat race, right? And then I I ended up reading a book called Rich Dad Poor Dad, which I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard about. And I, I read that book and I realized, oh my gosh, there's a way to to you know passively earn an income. And uh, you know, real estate just became that that path. And so I really wanted to pursue real estate. And um, and that was and even while I was going into law school, I thought, man, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna practice law. I'm just gonna focus on real estate. And then then I started wholesaling uh, while I was in law school. And I was doing pretty good, um, but I remember sitting down with one of my mentors, and he said, "You know, when you're in real estate, you know, think about your goals as far as you know why you're in real estate, and always work towards those goals. So, what you know, why are you doing this? And uh, at the time, the reason was because I wanted a passive income so I could quit any kind of W two. At, at the time, I was in law school, so I didn't have a uh, a long term job, but um, I did. I, I also didn't want to graduate law school and, and get into a, a long term." W-2 job that I didn't like. So I thought, man, I'm just going to get into real estate, get the passive income. And then he was like, okay, so if you're going to, if you're going to get the passive income, how much do you need in order for you to say, okay, I'm, I'm, I can quit. I can retire off of this. And so my goal was, I think at the time, $60,000. So if I can get $60,000 in passive income, you know, I would be good. And, uh, and so we started going, you know, we, we were wholesaling houses together, flipping a couple of houses and I just realized how long, even with making those those pretty pretty decent sized clips in in wholesaling houses, how long it would take me to uh, to buy that house or to to buy enough houses to hit sixty k in passive income. And so I, when I was thinking about how to expand this, I came across the word syndication. And at the time, I didn't know what it was, even though in law school we had talked about securities laws and all this other stuff. Syndication did not come to my it was not it was not a part of my. Um, you know, my uh, awareness. And so when I came across this term, uh, I, I learned that it was, it was just one of those ways that you can, um, you can really scale up a business instead of, instead of buying one house at a time, you can buy just a, a chunk of properties at a time, or, or maybe even one apartment at a time and really solve a lot of those cash flow problems. Um, but, but of course, buying the, those bigger, bigger projects required more money that I didn't have. And so syndication became this way, at least for me, to to quickly solve that that cash flow problem, but even if, no matter where you are, it, it is potentially a way to um, increase to scale your business 
and to increase leverage. It's kind of like uh, if you if you guys have ever done stock trading, you know uh, when you when you do when you have leverage, if it's a, a you say a hundred to one leverage, any dollar that you make, you make a hundred dollars, right? And of course, the the downside is if you lose a dollar, you lose a hundred. But um, in in real estate, you also leverage. You can also leverage. Uh, you know your you can leverage, you pull a lot of levers in order to increase your ROI. And one of those levers is obviously debt, but another one of those is, is other people's equity, other people's money. And so this uh, just became a really exciting area of law where it just opened up so many opportunities to uh, accomplish your goals. Um, but it's so important, uh, you know, it became so important for me to learn how to do that and how to help other people do that. And so I, you know, that's, that's really my focus right now in my law, in, in my practice of law, which is just, uh, I want to help people um, you know, raise capital and really meet their their financial goals through uh, through raising capital. And so I want to walk through a through a quick um, a video because we're going to get into the laws. And that part, unfortunately, can be kind of boring. I mean, it's it's now fun for me. Um, but even when I first started getting into it and start trying to figure it out, it was very tedious, it was very difficult. But, um, you know, but the law, the legal part can be kind of kind of boring. So I, I definitely want to show sort of the benefit of raising capital, uh, using other people's money. So I've got a financial model that I, uh, I set up a, a, a template deal. Anyway, so this is a, this is a, one of my financial models that I use. And uh, I've just highlighted all the areas that we're going to go through because I don't want to go, I don't want to take up too much time going through all of this. So let's say you have a, you find, find an apartment, it's 40 unit, uh, the purchase price is $7 million. And uh, in, in a syndication, in, in, in a syndication or a fund, and I'm going to, I use those two, two terms kind of interchangeably, but a syndication is basically raising other people's money to purchase to purchase a, uh, an asset. And usually when I use the term syndication, uh, this isn't the way everybody uses it, but when I use the term syndication, I usually mean an identified asset that you've already got under contract or something like that versus a fund where you might uh, you might just have a deal, a deal criteria and you use other people's money to go find those deals. So those are the, so I use those two terms differently, but in this case, it's a, you know, this is a syndication and, and in a syndication uh, as a, as a, um, as a sponsor, you can charge several fees to your, to your investors, right? One of those fees is an acquisition fee. Um, and that can be anywhere from one to one to 4%. Any, anything over 4% is on the high end, but I have, I have seen higher acquisition fees. Um, you can also charge construction management fees. For example, if you're doing uh, a lot of rehab, uh, you can you can charge those, uh, you know, charge construction management fees. I typically see anything from six to eight um, in this for, for purposes of, the, of this walkthrough. I'm not going to charge uh, or I'm not going to get into the construction piece of this. But again, if you do have a, a heavy lift, um, you can also charge construction management fees. Um, you can also charge uh, refinance fees. And again, those are typically between one and two percent. Um, and then disposition fee, which is basically, you know, on the sale, uh, sale of prop of the property. And then, uh, and then, you know, you can really charge whatever fees you want to. We obviously want to disclose that to investors, but, um, I'm just going to show you how, how those fees and, uh, along with, with your share of the, the, the profits can really, you know, can be, can be life-changing, right? So assume that you buy this property for, for $7 million and you're going to hold it for five years. And the, the split that you're going to give your investors is 7% preferred return. And a preferred return is sort of, I mean, for, for lack of a better term, it's sort of like an interest rate that you pay your investors. And I, I say it's sort of like an interest rate because it's not, an interest rate is something that's required to be paid. 
uh, a preferred return is just something that investors get before anybody else. It's, it's just a, a priority return that they get. Um, but if they, but if you don't have enough cash flow to satisfy that that preferred return, then they don't get paid. They, they don't get that. Uh, they, they don't get that paid to them. So the preferred return is can be anywhere from um, from you know usually six to six to ten percent is is typically what I see. Um, but you you can also not you know give a preferred return um, if you don't want to. But in my scenario, I'm going to give a seven percent preferred return. The investors are going to get the seventy you know seventy percent of all profits of all cash flow. And they're going to get, and you as the sponsor are going to get 30%. So, you know, we have the, we have the revenue tab where I put in the revenue again, it's not uh, super important. And then I've got the, um, you know, we got the appreciation in market rent growth over here. So we're assuming that it's, you know, the market's appreciating three, 4%. And so if you go to the annual cash flow, um, you see that you're cash flowing in, in year one. And again, this is just a sample deal. So it's not. So take this for what it is. But after debt service and everything, uh, you have two hundred sixteen thousand dollars left over in my in my hypothetical uh, example. So we go to the waterfall and we see how that how that is is divided, and you can see how much your investors are getting are going to get. They your investors in this hypothetical deal um, invest. You know, so you need to raise about two point five million dollars, and they're they're they get their preferred return of one hundred seventy two thousand dollars a year. Um, plus the the excess cash flow um, after you know after the after they hit their their preferred return they get seventy percent of the cash flow you get thirty two thousand dollars which doesn't seem like you know that that doesn't seem like a lot but this is just one deal you know one deal versus doing multiple deals where <clears throat> where for me I needed to do uh, I think at the time when I was when I was uh, calculating how much I, I needed to make sixty thousand uh, dollars in passive in income. I needed something like 20 or 30 houses. I forget what the number was at the time, but um, that took a lot of work and you had to do all, you know, all the due diligence for each individual property. But in this case, just one, one 40 unit deal could get you halfway there. Plus that acquisition fee that you get at the front end, you're making $210,000 of that. Uh, there's a book out there called the best ever syndication uh, by Joe Fairless or the best ever syndication book by Joe Fairless. And he, he suggests he's, he says when you're um, you know, because you're doing a lot of work um, for, you know, to, to raise capital, to find these deals, to due diligence, them to, to do all this stuff to, to close this deal. Um, so you should get paid for that. And so um, he actually recommends focusing when you're first starting out in syndications to focus on the acquisition fee, because you can, you can literally, you know, essentially feed your family just with the acquisition fee. And that can hold you over till the next deal, right? Or to, to get you through the first deal and then hold you over to the next deal. But on the acquisition alone, you're making 210,000 and then you're making $30,000 in year one passively. Again, hypothetical deal, but this is just what what's possible. And then in year four, thanks to appreciating rent growth, you can make up to $60,000. And then in year five, when you sell the deal, you're exiting with $752,000. And that's just on exit, right? But you also made all this other money along the way. And so, you know, the the other nice thing about it is as you start to scale, you know, let's say that you wanted to, well, let me go back to this. So the total that profits that you would make as a sponsor could be $1.1 million over the course of five years. And, you know, that's for some people, depending on on your, uh, on where you are in, in, in real estate, that, that number is not uh, that big anymore, but for for people who are new at the new to this, this this can be life changing money. And the the nice thing is, is if you did five deals a year, or if you did one deal a year, 
that's over $5 million that, that you have at the end of, at the end of the deal cycles. And so that's, it's game changing. And if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to make more faster, you can just, you know, maybe scale up the size of the, uh, the size of your, your offering or the size of uh, the deals that you go after. Right. So let's say that you go after, uh, you know, instead of 40 unit deals, maybe you go after 80 unit deals. And as you can see here, your, your profits from that would be almost $2.3 million just by, just by going after a bigger deal. So for me, real estate syndication and, and funds are, are one of the best ways to, to scale your, your business and to hit your, your financial goals a lot faster. But in order to, to hit those goals, you have, there are some things that you have to know. And, and the main things are going to be uh, regarding uh, compliance with the SEC. And so as you know, for me, I'm, I'm a securities attorney. So obviously I focus on, uh, uh, you know, uh, SEC compliance, but also I like to think that, that I help people in the, from a legal perspective, also manage their, manage their funds, manage their, their businesses from a legal perspective. So it's not just, uh, it's not just com SEC compliance, but it's the whole operating your company, operating your business, operating your fund. Um, in an efficient manner that's also protective, uh, you know, protective for you, but also your investors. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, in order to in order to start begin syndicating real estate, excuse me, you have to be aware of some of the laws, and some of the, some of you might be aware of them already. I know there was another attorney on here uh, a few weeks ago who who spoke about this. Excuse me, but I just want to build out a framework so that when you guys. Uh, start going and, and raising capital or, or even start considering raising capital for your deals. You can just have a have an understanding of the laws that are implicated when you're doing that. <clears throat> and uh, and so this uh, so yeah, so my goal is to to sort of just present the a general framework. And then anytime you have a question or anytime you come up across a situation, hopefully my goal is that you have sort of a, a again, a, just a mental framework for you to plug in that question and say, okay, this this issue belongs here. How do I deal with it, right? Or you know, how who who do I need to talk to to help me deal with it? So, um, so I'm just going to go through my this deck real quick. So the first question is, what is a security? I, you know, I mentioned that I'm I'm a securities attorney, but what is a security? And the SEC, if you look at the the rules re regarding securities laws, they just have a laundry list of uh, of things that they say is a security. But um, a lot of people, what what the, what people started to do is they started to uh, develop these instruments to try and get around that laundry list, and so the SEC, so the uh, so one of those th those cases went to the Supreme Court, and uh, and the the SEC basically came up with a test to say, okay, if you meet these requirements or if you meet these factors, you sold a security, even if it's not in the definition of the the Securities Act, you're selling a security if you you know if you meet these uh th you know these uh criteria. And those three criteria are right here. Are you raising capital from passive investors? And those passive investors, well, let me finish that. So are you raising from, from passive investors? Will they, are they expecting a, a return of any kind? And will those returns based, be based off your efforts? And if the answer to all three of those is yes, then you likely have a security. There's, there's some exceptions, um, but uh, very few, and, and most of those are case by case specific. So the SEC has already said, hey, one of those things that is a security is an interest in an LLC or, an, or, or a share of, of an LLC. Because when you go to raise capital, you're going to say, hey, investors, 
you give me money and in exchange, I'm going to give you a, a piece of my company. And that piece of a company usually called a share or an interest that is considered a security if, if capital is being exchanged for that, for that share. And so um, a lot of people think that there's, there's different exceptions. For example, um, I was actually at a, at a conference a few months ago now, and there, it was on single family. It, it was a guy teaching about how to raise capital for single family properties. And he, he said, Hey, if you structure it like this, this is not a security because it's such a small deal and it's only one investor and, you know, one investor, one house, it's not a security. That's not the way it works. Um, I didn't, you know, I, I'm not there. I wasn't there to enforce the law. So I didn't, you know, it wasn't my, my place to, to say anything on for, to him on stage, but um, but that's not the case. It, it doesn't matter how small the deal is. doesn't matter how, matter how big the deal is. doesn't matter how many investors there are. Um, so really, you know, there's, there's three, there's three ways that you can handle uh, a securities issue. And the best way, the the cheapest way is to avoid implications. Uh, as Chris, as Chris pointed out, you know, if you're trying to avoid saying, Hey, I have a security, then everybody who is participating in that, in that project, whatever that project might be, has to have an active role. And that active role has to be significant uh, in a way that the, if the SEC was to ever investigate, the SEC can come to the conclusion, yes, everybody is active, therefore there is no security. So that's the best way to do that is, is avoid the implications. And we're going to go through all the securities laws and discuss how, how to avoid the implications. The, the second option is if you have a security, right? You can't, you can't avoid the implications. You have a security. You have to register it with the SEC. Um, and that could take that could take up to two years. <clears throat> it could cost, I've heard, up to a million, you know, up to a million dollars, maybe even more. Because at that point you're you're essentially going public. Um, you know we got we have these uh, these three um, factors here that or th these three uh, things that the the SEC will look at. Are you raising capital for passive investors? Will they be expecting return based off your efforts? If yes, then you have security. So this is the next slide I was on, which was, um, you know, how to you know how to deal with uh, with the securities law. And there's four four main securities laws. And again. It's always, can you avoid the implication of any any or all of those securities laws? If no, then you got to register with the, the SEC. Um, but that's not ideal because it's so expensive, can be so time consuming. So ideally, we want to find an exemption. If we can't avoid the implication, we want to find an exemption uh, to registering under the securities laws. So the first one is the Securities Act of 1933. And the, the sort of abridged version is that it's unlawful to offer or sell a security uh, and, and whenever I say a security, just think it's unlawful to raise capital in my in my LLC or in my entity. It's 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 unlawful to to exchange ownership for capital, right? So it's unlawful to to sell a security without registering with the SEC, unless it's exempt from registration. And so, um, how to avoid the implication? Because again, that's that's going to be the the cheapest and easiest. Well, I wouldn't say easiest. It's going to be the cheapest route and the fastest is just to avoid the securities law. Or the the yeah any of the securities laws and so um, structure it so so that so the options are structure it um, so that it's not a security and how do you structure that well ensure all the partners are going to be active in the deal so if you're gonna if you're gonna raise capital from your rich uncle to go flip this house that uncle needs to do something significant to to ensure that he is active in that role now the problem with with ensuring all partners are active is that the SEC applies a facts and circumstances analysis on a case-by-case -case basis. So without knowing exactly how the, the SEC is going to rule, it's, it is sometimes difficult to know how much activity is, 
is enough to ensure you are, um, you know, you're, you don't have a security to ensure that all your partners have an active role. So that, that can be difficult, but a lot of, you know, joint venture deals are structured this way where, you know, maybe one person has, uh, you know, the, the financial background, the other person has the development background. And so they, they make a good partnership and they both have money. They come together and they work on a project. That would be a good example where a security does not exist. Um, and so we don't have to worry about all the other laws, but usually if, again, if you're raising capital from passive investors, it's, and even if you want to structure it, so it's not a security, it could be very difficult to say, okay, even though you intended to be passive, uh, investor, now you got to be active. So we don't trip up, you know, trip, trip up these, uh, securities acts. That could just be a very difficult, um, that could just be a, a very gray area to try and figure out. So, um, so the other ways to do that, or the other ways to, to deal with this law, is to use an exemption from registration. So let's say you can't avoid the the, the implication of the securities laws. You know, you're doing a, a $10 million deal and you got to, at least some of your investors are going to be passive. So you can't avoid the implication of securities law. So you have to find an exemption. Uh, there's a lot of different exemptions. I'm sure you've heard of Reg A, Reg C, CF, uh, you know, Reg D, Rule 504. But the, the most common, I think over... Um, I think I, I read recently almost $13 trillion um, have been raised under under Reg D, 506B and 506C versus I think it, it's only been a couple billion dollars under these other, these other regulations combined. So Reg D is by far the most common one to use when you're raising uh, money in the, in the private markets. And so Reg D, Rule 506B, uh, I'm sure some of you guys have heard about this, but uh, it allows you to raise unlimited amount, amount of money. You can have up to 2,000 accredited investors. And once you once you get over 2,000 accredited investors, the, the law basically treats you as essentially a public uh, company. And therefore, you have to, it requires you to, to uh, make additional disclosures and all this other stuff. And so, um, yeah, so you ha can have up to 2,000 acc uh, accredited investors and up to 35 non-accredited investors. And actually, I should say total investors you can have is is 2,000. Uh, is 2000. So between the non-accredited and accredited investors, um, accredited investors, uh, for those who, who aren't familiar with the term just means, you know, high net worth individuals, people who have over a million dollars of net worth or, uh, to, you know, if they're depending on if they're, 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 uh, uh, you know, individuals or, or <clears throat> jointly owning the shares, they have to have either $200,000 or $300,000 of yearly income. Uh, but you can't advertise, you cannot advertise under rule 506B. Um, you have to have uh, what's called a pre-existing relationship with all your investors. Um, and then you, but the nice thing is you can self-certify. Uh, so in other words, if, if, if a non-accredited investor says, Hey, yes, I I'm, I'm not accredited. You can have your accredited investor say, yes, I, I am accredited. And you can take that as uh, you can, you can rely on that, their, their self-certification. Whereas in, in Reg D, <clears throat> excuse me, in Reg D, it's the same, it's, it's a similar situation. Um, but you can't, you cannot, or you can advertise, um, but you have to take reasonable steps to verify that they are accredited. And so when I say you can advertise means you can, you know, you can go out on, on social media blast that you have a deal going on. Uh, you can do, you know, do Google ads or, or however you want to advertise to, to bring in, to bring in investors. You can do that under rule 506C. And, um, 
And these are, these can be very nuanced. I mean, I I've, I've been doing this for, for a little bit now, and I've just seen so many different variations of when you can't advertise under 506 B and, uh, and what, what advertising looks like. I don't want to get into all that because again, it, it's sometimes very case by case specific, but just generally you can't advertise if you're going to, uh, if you're going to be raising, uh, under 506 B. So what a lot of people do, and this is something really cool that, that I've, you know, really, it was kind of surprising that the SEC did this, but um, about three years ago, you weren't allowed to do to go from a 506B to a 506C. In other words, you weren't allowed to rely on the rule. Let's say you were buying a, a real estate project and uh, you had your friends and family who weren't accredited and you wanted to bring them into the deal, but you also needed to advertise in order to, in order to get some more investors into the deal um, in order for you to close that project. You used to you used to either have to choose 506B to let your friends and family in or 506C. You couldn't use both um, because the SEC would essentially, if it's for the same project, they would integrate that. Most recently, the SEC has actually uh, gone back on that and said, "Hey, you can actually go from a 506B to a 506C. Um, however, you need to basically." cease all activity under 506b and then commence under 506c in order to in order to not be integrated and so uh so that's a really good option for people who say hey i i do want to bring in some friends and family uh, but i also need to advertise right so so how we how we would structure that is we would raise the capital under rule 506b close that offering and then do a new offering under 506c um but the nice thing is too that the sec doesn't require new offering materials so you don't have to create all new all new documents for for the the new offering. So it can uh, it actually saves a lot of a lot of time and a lot of money as well. So um so the other things that you have to know about this is that um, this is where you you know the other requirements are that you do have to provide all material disclosures to your investors, and this is where you get the PPM and uh, the subscription agreement operating agreement. So if you if you've ever engaged with a with a securities attorney, usually they all have these the operating agreement. In it. Uh, 506B is actually, um, or I should say, you know, if if you have been raising capital before, you know, doing all this stuff before learning about this, my my hope is that at least you used uh, accredited investors. And I say that because under these rules, you also have to provide certain disclosures and the disclosure requirements are a lot more stringent if you, if you have even one accredited investor. The STC basically says, hey, if you have one non-accredited investor, you have to provide all these disclosures. Whereas if you have right. uh, just accredited investors, there, there's less stringent uh, requirements. And so um, so ideally, you know, if you if you've done this before without uh, you know, without going through all these steps, ideally, you know, you would have accredited investors. And so, and, and I know I saw uh Patrick Shiguru on here, who's who's one of my mentors uh, in this practice. And uh, you know, his, his advice is that if you can, if you can use only accredited investors, that would be, that would be ideal. But obviously sometimes that's, that's not possible, but, uh, that is you know, kind of a, a benefit, you know, it is preferred if, if it can be, um, if it can be helped. Uh, yeah. So basically, you know, we definitely want to make sure that we have the disclosure requirements. Again, that's where the PPM comes into play and the, the PPM kind of acts as a, as an insurance policy, because if an investor can ever come up to you and say, Hey, I wouldn't have invested whether they're accredited or not accredited, if they said, Hey, I wouldn't have invested had I known this, then you have either, you can either have, um, you know, an issue with the sec, they can go to the sec and file a complaint or they can file a civil complaint. And so either way, you don't want to, you don't want to get wrapped up in that. So, uh, the PPM kind of acts as an insurance policy that says, Hey, here's everything that could go wrong. You sign agreeing that you understand that everything could go wrong. 
And uh, so basically, if you come back and say, hey, I would have invested had I known this, you can say, hey, we, we, we disclosed that to you. We told you that that could happen. You know, this is no longer on us. It's it's on you. And so, um, but yeah, you definitely want to make sure those disclosure require those disclosure requirements are met. The the next act is the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934, and basically this is where uh, Chris, I think you were asking, is what kind of license do I need to raise capital? And the answer is you need a you need to be a registered broker dealer. And broker dealers fall under uh, FINRA law, so so not only do you have to register under that uh, under the SEC and follow all their requirements. But FINRA has a has a whole separate uh, list of requirements that can just get very expensive, very difficult to follow, and very time consuming as well. And and it, in some ways, especially if your focus is on real estate, it can just not be worth it, potentially depending on your situation. It may not be worth going through all the all the trouble of registering as a broker dealer. But the SEC also provides a uh, an exemption from being a broker dealer, which is if you are well, actually, sorry, let me re, uh, get through this slide. Um, a lot of people in, in their deals, they, um, they use in, in this space, at least, I don't know if you've heard this before, but in this space, they call them capital raisers, right? Or they'll call them co-GPs or, or something like that. And what they mean is, um, if, if you find a deal, you may not have the capital connections. And so you bring in people who do have capital connections and what you do, what, what a lot of people have done is they'll make them part of the, part of the management team. Um, and, and give them a piece of the the, the management's pie uh, in order to bring that in order to to incentivize them to to come into the deal and bring their investors. The the problem is, is that the the SEC literally says, hey, you can't do that unless you're a broker dealer. And on their website, they even said, what is a broker dealer? It's it's any individuals or entities that are engaged in finding investors for issuers. And the issuer, by the way, would be your entity that's that's purchasing the project or raising capital. So they said, hey, if you're engaged in finding investors for issuers, you're you're a broker dealer and you need to register. Or it's persons, persons, they they specifically say this, persons that market real estate investment interests. That includes your your shares and your LLC that's purchasing the property. So these people are broker dealers. And so the um, so the issue, and, and by the way, you know, you as a sponsor, even though you're you're managing the deal, you would even be considered you would also be considered a, uh, a broker dealer. So the SEC comes up, came up with an exemption um, and it's called the associated person of the issuer exemption. Uh, it's not a very, uh, yeah, it's kind of a mouthful, but basically they say that if you're associated with the issuer, you can be exempt from this, from, from, uh, from registering as a broker dealer. If you meet all these requirements, you know, you can't be a bad actor. In other words, you can't have, you couldn't have been accused of a financial crime. Uh, you can't receive special compensation or commission for selling securities. What this means is uh, the, the SEC calls it uh, transactions-based compensation. You cannot take commission. You cannot take compensation equal to how much capital you raised. I see this a lot, unfortunately, um, where people say, okay, if you bring in 10% of the capital, I'll give you 10% of the what they call the GP. I'll give you 10% of the management company. And um, you know, that that's that's a, a very obvious red flag. And then they also say that the one of the other requirements is that you also have to perform significant duties uh, for the issuer after completing the offering. And your compensation has to be commensurate with the work that you do. And so going back to this, um, and, and there's there's these other um, there's these other requirements, but the SEC has said, you know, of all the requirements, some of them, you know, if you fail to meet one, it won't bar you from this exemption, but these two, these two in the middle, are ones that if you do fail to meet these requirements, then you will, 
uh, most likely be seen as a broker dealer, an unlicensed broker dealer. And so um, a lot of people, what they do is, is going back to that, that co-GP situation where they say, hey, you know, if you're buying the property, I, I don't have the capital connections. I know somebody who has the capital connections. I'm just going to bring them in and give them a significant role. The problem is, is that the SEC is the ultimately the one who's going to determine if those roles are significant enough to allow you to use the the broker dealer or the the uh, this exemption, and so um, it's it can be kind of difficult to track. Um, you know, there's there's different situations where we can we can help develop um, you know develop your operating agreements or develop advisory contracts to make sure that uh, these these individuals that you're bringing in are actually going to be performing significant roles. Um, but it is, but you know, if the SEC ever does audit you and they see a, a GP team or a management team uh, that's you know 15 people long on one on one real estate project, it might raise some red flags. And so, just wanted you guys to be aware of that. Um, and if you guys are considering bringing in uh, sort of capital partners, for lack of a better term, uh, certainly let's talk about it and, and figure out some strategies for for making sure that we uh, comply with this uh, with this rule. Uh, but this is one of the biggest ones, I think in our space that if it gets violated the most, this one's probably, probably it. And then uh, the other two, I'm going to talk about these other two, um, that in, in syndications, when you're just talking about one, one project, you typically don't, uh, and I see I'm actually uh, coming, we're coming uh, to pretty close. Um, I'll, I'll try to wrap up as quickly as I can, because we still got to get through the the, the deal structures, but um, you know, if we have to talk about that next time, we, we can. But so this isn't a, a, a thing that we talk about too much when we're dealing with a specified uh, specified deal. But oftentimes, when you're when you're developing funds, you have to consider the Investment Company Act and the Investment Advisor Act. So basically, what we're uh, here in the Investment Company Act is says any company that that holds itself out as being engaged primarily in uh, in the business of investing or reinvesting or trading of securities. You have to register as a investment company, and then the the best way to avoid that implication is to just not act as an investment company. I know that's uh, you know that's sort of circular, but um, the the SEC basically says, hey, if you're operating a deal or if you wholly own subsidiaries that operate a deal specifically, uh, you're an operating company, and therefore you're not an investment company. So that's pretty that's pretty st straightforward in a syndication where you've got a deal identified. You're more likely being an operating company than you're acting as an op operating company, not as a uh, an investment company. So you can avoid this. Um, it gets trickier when you when you when you talk about funds that are going to potentially invest in other people's deals or fund of funds which specifically invest in other people's deals. Um, so if those if if you ever come across those situations, there's two uh, two main exemptions. If you're not going to be considered an operating company, the two exemptions are found in Section Three C One. Uh, which basically limits you to 100 investors, uh, but that's not ideal, especially you know if you're you know if you do have a lot more smaller investors that you know if you have smaller investors you're probably going to have a lot more of them in order to reach some uh, financial goal. So you can also rely on again in some situations uh, if you're going to have direct interest in the property or um, or the same ben as the SEC says the same benefits as a direct interest in in real estate you can rely on 3C5C which is a real estate exemption from the Investment Company Act saying, hey, if you are, again, owning direct interest or get the same benefits as a direct interest in real estate, then uh, then you're exempt from the, you know, registering as an investment company. Um, and that's pretty nice because they don't have a limit on the number of investors. 
And then finally, the Investor Advisor Act, Investment Advisor Act. It says anybody who uh, holds themselves out as a uh, for compensation is in the biz is engaged in the business of providing advice to others uh, or issuing reports or analysis of securities. So, when, so basically, if you're an investment advisor, you have to register as an investment advisor. Um, but the exemptions, there are, uh, you know, the implications really, again, if you are, um, if you are focused on a specific project, you're not, you're not, you're, you're likely not giving advice on securities. And the, the SEC has even said in their, in one of their issue, um, in one of the statements they've issued, that real estate is not a security. So again, if you're purchasing one property and you're saying, hey, investors come invest in, in you know, in this deal, then you're likely not acting as as a as an investment advisor. Um, but again, if you you know in in a fund to fund situation, you definitely have to consider. Uh, and I'll go through a fund to fund structure, which basically a fund to fund structure is where you you raise capital in your own deal or in your own business to 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 invest in another business. Um, and there are some some complications with that, but um, the you know, if you find yourself in that situation, just a couple of things to, to, to remember is that one of the exemptions from registering with the SEC is that you have to have 150 million uh, or less or, or more in, in assets under management. And if you don't have that, if you're if you're a small, if you're on the smaller side, um, you have to look at the state's laws and see what their exemptions are. Um, so so it becomes a state by state analysis. But the, the SEC also has something um they also have an exemption for investors to uh, or uh, investment advisors to private funds where you don't have to do a full registration, but you have to do a partial registration. Um, and so the, these uh, are often called exempt reporting advisors. And uh, and every state, again, also has uh, deals with exempt reporting advisors differently or investors on, on private funds differently. And so we're going to go through and again, most mostly when when you deal with the Investment Advisor Act, you're, you're mostly dealing with um you're you're mostly dealing with fund of funds uh, a fund of funds issue so this is a, a joint what we what i'm calling a joint venture structure and this is where all the all the members are active and uh again you know you have the main sponsor who's who's might have who might have day to day management but the capital partner or this active partner might have a more uh you know a less involved role but they still need to be involved uh and again you you create this uh special purpose entity where that'll hold the property and then everybody just you know works to make sure that this property is uh, this project is successful. Um, so the the laws, you know, so basically you know if you're looking at the different laws, right, starting from the Securities Act of 1933 to the Securities and Exchange Act to the Investment Company Act and the uh, Investment Advisor Act, um, essentially none of those are are implicated because if everybody has an active role, then it's not a security, and therefore we don't have to go into the analysis of all these other rules, right? It's not a security, so you don't have to worry about it. Here's a here's sort of a basic deal structure that I I how I structure my deals. I was on a phone call with another attorney the other day, <clears throat> actually yesterday, and we had we we structured deals differently, um, and so we we discussed pros and cons of this. But this is how I I typically structure my deal. Um, if you have a property or multiple properties identified, you would uh, you could own them in a, in this one syndication entity. If you have a fund, if you again, if you if you're going out and buying multiple properties um, that haven't been identified yet, you might want to create se separate uh, what we call SPEs that will own the properties, and the fund will will be a wholly owned uh, or will will wholly own those those other SPEs, and the SPEs will own the property. But generally speaking, this is the this is the the deal structure we have the syndication entity. I always structure it as a as a manager managed LLC, and that way we can have a management entity 
that will that will uh, manage this this company and it will make all the day to day all the day to day decisions. You and your your management team, you guys will be members of this management entity, um, but you'll also hold and you'll be entitled to those fees that we talked about, right? The the acquisition fee, the disposition fee, all that fun stuff. Uh, that's where that's the management entity will get that. Um, but if you're doing something like a 70-30 split with investors of, of cash flow or, or, or uh, proceeds at, at a sale, um, that 30% promote, or some people call it a carried interest, I call it a promote, um, you know, or you, maybe you've heard it called something else, but that 30%, <clears throat> I'm just going to call it a promote, that 30% promote will go to the class B members. And typically what how I recommend is that you have a separate holding company that is a class B member that you can have your 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 uh, your uh, class B shares held in, and uh, the reason why is because we want to separate out liability between the management entity and the class B members. Sorry about that. Um, and the reason why is because if the management entity, for example, ever gets gets sued because they're the ones doing the the most work on the deal, then you you don't want that thirty percent uh, promote to be at risk because that's going to be your biggest chunk of change. So you don't want that to be at risk. So we so we separate that out by creating a, a holding entity as a class B member. And then your management entity uh, is just going to get the fees. So again, if it ever gets sued, then you can always stop paying the fees. But uh, but the promote is still is still protected. Um, however, in that kind of deal where you where you do have class A, I forgot to mention the class A members are the investors. Um, and you can also have several different classes of, of class A members. For example, you if one investor give, puts in a lot of money uh, and you want to give them special rights or, or special compensation, you can call them class A1 members. Everybody else is class A2 members, something like that. But but generally speaking, they're going to be, um, from, from the way I structure deals, they're going to be class A members. And again, the Securities Act is implicated, um, So, but we can, uh, we can find an exemption as long as the rules reg D are followed. Securities and Exchange Act of 1934 is implicated um, and, and satisfied only if all the sponsors, all the management team has a significant role. And then the uh, Investment Company Act, I don't think it's, you know, in my opinion, I don't think it's um, uh, it's implicated because you're operating the deal. However, if you're doing a fund, there may be more questions as to whether you're an investment company. But again, if you're a fund who's who's directly owning the property or through a, through a subsidiary uh, is directly controlling the property, then you can rely on 3C5C. And then the Investment investment Advisor Act, also not implicated because you are operating real estate, you are not purchasing securities in another company. Um, in this deal structure, um, I just, I, it's pretty much the same thing. I just wanted to show like, you know, again, some people bring in these, these so-called capital raisers and uh, and it's the same, it's the same implication, same everything, uh, except that the uh, Securities and Exchange Act of 34, you just have to be really careful <clears throat> because the, if the SEC ever does audit you, they could find that to be problematic. And then uh, a fund of fund situation, this is where, um, this is actually, so for example, if you don't want to bring in a capital raiser into the management team, um, I, and I've actually structured one fund uh, where the fund was, was only raising capital from fund of funds. I also call them feeder funds. But what a feeder fund is or a fund of funds is, is it's another, it's a separate LLC that has its own investors, has its own manager, and that fund of funds will become a class A member, come, become a, an investor in this syndication entity. And so basically all the, you know, so you as the, as the manager, you don't have to add anybody to your, to your management team because they're going to be investing in, through their own, through their own fund. And so, again, I, I set up a, a fund recently where 
uh, they only raise capital through fund to fund, you know, through fund to funds. So they said, hey, we're not we're not taking any of our own investors into into this LLC. We're only taking on fund to funds, and they were able to raise capital pretty quickly, pretty efficiently that way. So um, that's one way to um, to sort of uh, I don't want to I don't want to say circumvent, but that's one way to potentially comply with the broker dealer issue that you have with with bringing in capital raisers is if that that so-called capital raiser um, is actually a, a fund to fund manager, then you can, you know, uh, you can potentially um, avoid the the trouble that you get into bringing them into the management entity. So that's, that's actually one reason that's kind of a becoming a more popular structure for for people who are good at, at raising capital is, is the fund to fund structure. Um, the problem with the fund to fund structure implicates all the other things. Um, the Investment Company Act, you're definitely going to have to um, you're definitely going to have to comply with because now it's definitely an investment company act thing. And uh, you can't rely on 3C, 5C um, unless that fund to fund has significant uh, management control rights of the syndication entity. But most fund to fund managers don't want those, those control rights. So they have to rely on uh, the 3C1 exemption. In other words, they have to have 100, uh, 100 or fewer investors in, a, in the fund to fund. You also, you also trip up the Investment Advisor Act. And I could tell you, in fact, I, I know um, probably at least one other attorney on here uh, would give you a different different opinion on how to treat the Investment Advisor Act when you're dealing with the fund of fund. And that is, um, so for me, I say, hey, you're not an investment advisor if you have a deal identified and you can give that sponsor's team of that of that identified deal, we call it the master fund or the underlying the underlying fund. If you can give the the information from the master fund directly to your investors, rather than being that go-between, then uh, then you're not acting like an investment advisor. And so, uh, most of my clients who do fund of funds, I always recommend that you that you have a deal identified, or a, or, or uh, yeah, you have a deal identi identified, so you can say, hey, I'm going to be managing your money investors, but I'm not giving you any investment advice. All the advice that is that you're going to get on this deal is going to come directly from the master fund. And uh, so, so I have them provide the, the PPM and the operating agreement of the master fund. Um, the other thing, though, you know, you still want to look at some of the, the uh, and, and one of the reasons why I do that is because every state has different requirements for, uh, you know, private fund advisors, which is what you guys would, uh, if you guys fell into that category of an investment advisor, that's probably what you'd be considered. Um, um, but yeah, every state has different, different rules. So for example, Idaho says that you can, you can be a private fund advisor, but you can only take on qualified clients. In other words, clients that have, uh, a, a net worth of something like $5 million or more. Whereas a company like North Carolina says, Hey, you can be, uh, you know, you can be a private fund advisor to up to 15 companies before we even, we even have to worry about anything. So, you know, different States treat this differently. So I like to just avoid, avoid it altogether and just say, Hey, my, my clients are not acting like an investment advisor because they, all the, all the advice is coming from this master fund. They're not providing advice. They're only providing, um, you know, maintenance on this, on this, uh, on their business to, to allow investors to invest. And so the last one that that we'll go over is this, uh, what I call a JV, what I'm calling a JV syndication. Um, some people also might, might refer to it as pref equity, but essentially it's where two, two people who are raising capital from investors are, are going to, joint venture on on a project. Um, and you can do this again, you know, if you have a fund where you're, you're buying multiple properties, you can, again, set up an SPE and still create this similar situation, it would be just your fund, and this other, uh, this other syndication entity can can sort of joint venture on on the SPE. And so again, all the all the same, 
all the same things are implicated. The the difference is is that you know as an investment company, typically when you're when you're joint venturing on on a deal like this, both parties have some control rights in this in this SPE. Um, they have at the very least they have you know what's what might be considered customary uh, customary decision making skills. So when is the when is the asset going to get disposed of? When are we going to refinance the property, et cetera? Or if we're going to refinance, all those major decisions would be voted on by the managers of both these entities. And because they have certain control rights that the SEC says, hey, if you have if you have certain control rights, then it may look like you it, it you may be considered to have uh, the benefit of a direct interest in real estate. You can now um, you can now rely on on three C five C. Whereas in the fund of funds unless you have control rights in a fund of funds, you, you, you can't rely on three C five C. Um, what, but in this, in this situation, you can rely on three C five C. Uh, so again, you're not limited to hundred investors. Um, and you don't have to register as an investment company. And also again, because if you have direct interest in the, in the property and you have direct control rights, um, you're also not implicating the, um, the investment advisor act because you're not again, advising on securities. You are, um, you are managing real estate.